Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. I want to ask uh, you a question. What makes a worship service great? Uh, I didn't ask it this way, but how do we make worship services great again? Maybe that's another way you could ask it. Uh, if you're driving home and you're like, man, that worship service was great. Uh, what, what is it about the worship service that you thought was, was great, that made it great to you? Uh, I recently received a message from a person who attended Jacobswell a few times, and the message goes like this. I edited it a little bit just because of length. It says, hey, Pastor Dan, I don't think Jacobswell is going to be the church for us. It is a beautiful church. Everyone is very sweet, but there were a couple things that just didn't quite fit what we are looking for. That's completely fine. Uh, I know we are not the church for everybody. We are not a one-size-fits-all. Sometimes God is calling you to a different community. That is perfectly fine. Uh, that's God's call, not my call. And so I'm, I'm good with that. And I've gotten that message several times. Uh, but what was different about this one is for some reason they felt compelled to list out why, why Jacob's Well was not a good fit for them. So they said one of it was the music. It seemed to be very somber music and no one seemed to be enjoying the worship. And the church I came from, everyone would be clapping, singing, kids would be dancing around singing praises. So I think we are just looking for something a little more like that. And the communion threw me for a bit, little bit with everyone doing it together. Uh, it was pretty, beautiful, but it didn't give me enough time to speak with Jesus. Uh, when I receive a, a note like that, uh, my initial response is typically defensiveness, right? Like uh, uh, of me, but, but more so of you. Like, like uh, I think these people love Jesus. Uh, I've talked with them. I've sat with them. I know they love Jesus. But I also want to take the kernels of truth that are there and see what it's maybe revealing in our heart and how we can come to worship God uh, in the way that he desires. I also read this and, and I laugh a little bit because I get comments on the other side as well. I get people who come and say, you know, it's, your church is crazy, like charismatic because, you know, like three people raise their hands during the worship service. And, you know, the music is so loud and you play guitar and it's just, it's crazy. <coughs> you may have heard me say this before, but when it comes to Sunday morning worship, especially the music, we try to be an equal opportunity disappointer with everyone. Um, we want to disappoint everyone equally because guess what? Uh, the worship is not about you and it is not about me. The worship is about God. Several uh, decades ago, this term worship wars entered into the church, most likely only in American churches. I don't think a lot of other parts of the world think they would laugh at this. But anyways, and worship wars happened because people's preferences in the worship service 
started causing division in the church. Now, certainly all of us have preferences on what a Sunday morning worship service would look like, and there is nothing at all wrong with those preferences, most likely, and there's nothing even wrong with expressing those preferences to the appropriate people. But when it goes wrong is when those preferences become divisive in the people of God. Worship wars wage, I think, in all of our hearts. I know they wage in my heart, maybe more predominantly, even more than in your heart, because this worship service thing is kind of something that, that the elders put me in charge of running. And so I can easily come and critique all the little things that go wrong in, what I, in my sermon or whatever it might be. Worship wars arise when we attach spiritual maturity of a person according to their style of worship. So, you know, if they sing like this, they're somewhat a Christian. If they sing like this, you know, they're more of a Christian. The higher the hands, the more mature of a Christian they are, right? Or, contrastingly, the lower the hands are, right? This is just showing off, right? But this, this is reverence, okay? Worship wars happen when our preferences become more important than the object of our worship. Worship wars happen when we care more about the way people in our church worship than we do about the people that we are worshiping with. To put it succinctly, as I've shared before, worship wars happen when we worship worship. If you would, please open it up to Nehemiah chapter 12. In the Red Bible, it is page 408, and in the Children's Bible, it's page 524. <coughs> Excuse me. The question I want us to really focus on this morning is what does good worship services look like to God, right? That's the, that's the question we should be asking, isn't it? Today, as we read about this worship service, we'll see that this worship service in Nehemiah is actually a high point in the time of Nehemiah. It kind of goes downhill in the next chapter. But it's a worship service for a very specific purpose, to celebrate what God has done in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and to dedicate those walls to God. If you remember over the past hundred years of Jerusalem, from the, back from Nehemiah, God had done amazing things in restoring and reclaiming Jerusalem as his city. He helped the people rebuild the altar, rebuild the temple, reinstate the sacrificial system, and most recently to rebuild the wall and then repopulate the city. And so Jerusalem has been restored. It has re been reclaimed as a city of God. And so the people pause all of their energy, all of their rebuilding to come and to worship the Lord. And that's what we're going to read today in this passage. We're going to cover verse 27 through the first verse of chapter 5. So follow along with me in your Bible, uh, Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites. There we go. Also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall, 
and appointed two great choirs of thanks. Let me pause there for just a second. If you look up here at the map, and I lost my laser pointer, uh uh-oh, Nehemiah basically is going to assemble two choirs between the fountain gate and the dung gate up in the top left-hand corner. The first choir is going to go along the bottom side, which is the eastern side of the wall. And they're going to head north all the way down to the water gate, where they'll then enter into the, the city and then go into the Temple Mount. The second choir that we'll read about later is gathered also by the fountain gate, but they'll go on the upper portion of the wall, which is the western side, uh, all the way around. They go much further, all the way around the Temple Mount. And if you see down here in the bottom right-hand corner to the Tower of the Guard, And at the Tower of the Guard, they'll then enter the temple at that time. And so they gather together in the temple, two choirs, uh, singing praises and thanksgiving to God. If you can imagine how beautiful and majestic this would be, it would be amazing to be there. So that's that's kind of what we're going to be walking through. So let me start back here in verse 31. (coughs) Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zechur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azrael, Malali, Gilali, Mai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them at the fountain gate. They went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east side. The other choir, the second one, of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshana and by the fish gate and the tower of Hanel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. And I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Elikim, Messiah, Minamin, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehonan, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezriah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests. And the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs, praise, and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the day of Zerubbabel, 
And in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. On that day, they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord God, as we dig into your word, as we are reminded of the worship you desire, pray that you would bring down the defenses of our hearts to confess the areas that we are weak in, where we have gone astray, and to draw us into joyful obedience, to worship, not according to our preferences, but according to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. While this passage, as I mentioned, is certainly describing a unique celebration in the redemptive history of Israel, I do think there are aspects of this worship that can be instructive to us today. And so as we ask the question, what should a worship service look like? There are three aspects of this worship worship service in Nehemiah 12 that I want us to consider. The first is the components of worship. The second is the heart for worship. And the third is the access of worship. So we're going to start with the components of worship. Now this passage is by no means exhaustive in talking about the different components of worship, but it's helpful in reminding us of some of those things that are most important to God in our worship service. So I have five that I want to semi-quickly walk through. The first component may seem like an obvious one, but it is gathering. Look at verse 27. It says, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, the cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem. I know, again, this may seem obvious, but for corporate worship of God, which we do here on Sunday mornings, we are called to gather together. Hebrews 10 puts it this way. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. You know, as we walk through the book of Acts um, last year, one of the things that was noticeable is that you could not keep the people of the early church apart. Uh, There was no need to command them to gather together. They gathered together daily for the reading of God's word and for prayer because they desired and they loved the communion of the saints together. Evidently, the church had lost that desire because the writer of Hebrews tells them to not forsake gathering together as some have done. Evidently, they had seen the gathering together on, uh, for corporate worship as a thing that became a burden, an obstacle to that which they really wanted to do. The same thing is true today. Many times for people, whether it be physically or in their hearts, they say, I really don't want to go to church today. There are other things that are a higher priority on my list. They have a desire for more rest because, you know what, Sunday's the only day of the week that I really don't have to wake up early. They desire or or they have a higher commitment to their kid's sports team. You know, my sons play on different sports teams, and it's amazing because everyone there has a church that they say they're connected to. But when you ask them, they haven't been to church since Christmas. I mean, because they're too busy with their children's sports. There are other things that get in our way, like devotion to the lake house, to our golfing score, whatever it might be. 
And what's astounding for me as I consider our, our, our negligence or our lack of interest in gathering together for corporate worship is if you look at the persecuted church throughout the world today, the reason why they are persecuted, the source of the persecution, typically is because they are gathering together. And they know this, and yet they gather together because they know gathering together corporately for the worship of God is such a blessing from God, and it is so cherished by them that they gather together at the risk of their own freedom and even their own life. And so part, the first component of corporate worship is gathering together, to not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. The second component that we see here is singing. This is kind of all over the passage. We just read about it in in the first point with verse 27 through 28. As they gather singers along with cymbals and harps and lyres. Verse 35, we read they gather trumpets. Verse 36, other musical instruments. Verse 38 mentions uh, the second choir. Verse 42 mentions the singers that sang with Jezriah as their leader. Singing is a major element in the worship of God amongst the people of God. I don't know if you know this, but the single most frequently commanded thing in Scripture by God is for us to pray. The second most commanded thing by God is for us to sing. And so if you come here and you say, you know what, I'm not really a singing type of person. Uh, You're not being biblical in your worship. God says we are to come and we are to sing. You know, some of us fall off the other side, which is more where I go. I can't not sing. And I have this temptation to exalt singing and music above the God that I am singing to. And so I am tempted at times to worship the song or the emotion that comes with the song instead of worshiping the God that the song is focused upon. God in his brilliance has created music to be extremely powerful, to express majesty in ways that simple words fall short to do. That's why stadiums are sold out for concerts. That's why there's a radio in every single car. That's why teenagers are wearing headphones all the time. That's why when we get around the 4th of July and, you know, they sing the song, Proud to be an American, you can see old men that are rough and rugged start to cry because music is powerful. Martin Luther said, if you want to comfort the sad, if you want to terrify the happy, if you want to encourage the despairing, if you want to humble the proud, if you want to pacify the aggressive, there is no more effective means than music. God has made music to be powerful. God has created us to sing together in corporate worship, to celebrate the glory of his majesty and goodness of his gifts through song. So the first two components, gathering, singing. The third, praising. To praise someone or something is to express your adoration for that thing or that person. Usually we reserve it for someone who did close to a perfect job at whatever it might be. We, we praise them for what they did. And we praise in our hearts and in our minds and with our words, but also most certainly in songs. And that's what we see here in this passage. Verse 24, we read that the chiefs of the Levites, their names are listed out with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks. Verse 46, for long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving 
to God. Now, you see there's a distinction between praise and thanksgiving, and I'll mention that in a little bit. But when we come, we're called to praise God, and we praise God for who he is. We praise God because he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. We praise God because he sends the wind, the rain, the snow, and the sun. We praise God because he is the sustainer of millions of galaxies, as well as the pinky toe on your left foot. We praise God because he has dug out the oceans and formed the mountains. We praise God because he is perfect in all of his ways. He is holy. He is faithful. He is good. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is light. He is eternal. He is generous. He is compassionate. He is the great comforter. He is a partner. He is merciful. He is our rock. He is our refuge. He is our firm foundation. He is love. We praise God because God is God. And he is worthy of our praise. That rolls into the next component we see here, which is thanksgiving. Uh, We saw in verse 24, 26, which we we just read, but verse 27 says, And the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving. Verse 31, Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs, that gave thanks. Verse 38, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. Verse 40, so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. And so six times in this passage, you see a fundamental component of worship is thanksgiving. Now the distinction between praising God and thanksgiving may seem subtle, but it's actually fairly significant. We praise God for who he is, But then we thank God for what he has done in the world and in our lives. In Israel's case, they are thanking God for the restoration of the city, the restoration of the walls. This, after all, is a ceremony to dedicate the walls to God. If you remember, it laid in ruins for hundreds of years. And even as they rebuilt it against great resistance, it was flimsy. It was feeble. You remember Tobiah the Ammonite said, If a fox goes up on their wall, it will break to pieces. And yet in 52 days, by the grace of God, and through a lot of hard work, they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And the wall was so strong at this point that choirs could walk around the city on it. You know, I think there would be a temptation for these people to not thank God, but to thank one another and to thank themselves and say, look at what we have done. Look at this great wall that we have built. Man, we worked hard to do this. But they knew better. They knew that the thanks was appropriately given to God. You know, I think this is instructive for us because we are such a self-reliant, hard-working people. For example, you could gather around the dinner table and you could think to yourself, why are we thanking God for this food? I was the one who worked hard. I earned the money to buy the food that we have on the table. I cooked it up. And yet, who gave you the abilities And the talents to go and to work and to earn money to buy the food. Who who was it that made the cow and the salt to season it and make it so delicious? You know, I love that little uh, bit by Jim Gaffigan on bacon. It's like, it's not little, it's like 10 minutes long. But my favorite part is he says, you feed a pig an apple, which he says is essentially garbage. We know better, but anyways... He says, you feed a pig an apple and it turns to bacon. 
He says that's either magic or the greatest recycling program ever. We know that that's God. God makes great food for us to enjoy. He gives us taste buds to, to sense and to, to, to delight in those things that he has made. All of it as a finger pointing to the greatness and the glory and the love of God. Christians should be the most thankful people in the whole world because we know that every good and perfect gift comes from God above. The next component we see is giving. I always say this is a little bit uneasy for me to preach about this because it seems kind of self-serving. You know, it provides for my livelihood and things like that. But financially giving is an act of worship. It's not just a means. it's, It's worship to God. Verse 44, we read, On that day men were appointed over the storerooms. The contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes. Why were they appointed over this? To gather into them the portions required by the law. That is the law of God, God's word. For the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites, who ministered. I love that part, rejoicing over the clergy. That's a good idea. I think we should practice that here. Verse 47, and all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. To be honest with you, when it comes to the thought of money and worship, the question is not, will you worship with your money? But what will you worship with your money? You see, the way we spend money is never neutral. It's always communicating what we value, what we prioritize, what we worship. One of the easiest ways to tell what you worship is by simply pulling out your bank statement and seeing where things have gone. Now, please don't get me wrong. It's good to to have money to spend on things that we enjoy uh, as a gift from God. But are we enslaved to use our money to simply serve ourselves, or do we use it to serve and to promote the glory of God? I knew one man who told me that he could not give any money or even come to church. There's a lot of issues going on. Couldn't give to the poor. He couldn't help out mission. He couldn't do any of this stuff because his goal was to retire at a young age. It shows what he worships. He worships retirement and comfort. Another gentleman comes to me. He says, yeah, my goal is to reverse tithe. I said, what's reverse tithing? He said, I want to get to the point where I can give 90% away and live on 10%. You see, how we spend our money reveals what we worship. The final thing, and probably maybe the most important component of worship, is the reading and teaching of God's word. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. The scriptures have always been central to the people of God ever since the scriptures were formed. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And once (laughs) Moses moved on and and, uh, Joshua was raised up as the next leader of the people of God, God comes to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 at the very beginning. He says, this book of the law, talking about the scriptures, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Throughout the Old Testament, there are several revivals where the people of God return to God. And the common factor in all of those revivals is the rediscovery, reproclamation of the Word of God. 
Just a few chapters ago, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 3, we read this. It says, And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. I don't know, four or five hours they read from the scriptures. For another quarter of it, they made confession. That's what God's word does. It reveals our sinfulness and our need to repent. But then it goes on and says, and worshiped the Lord their God. That's what God's word should lead us towards, to worshiping and exalting the God of grace. God's worship, excuse me, God's word is central in our worship. We are to be people of the word. You know, when I was on sabbatical, I got to visit a bunch of different churches. I was only in town one weekend, so I actually visited three churches on one Sunday, which is fun for me. I'm kind of weird like that. But anyways, as I visited those churches, this, uh, this term kind of came to mind. And, and so Trish and I can kind of talk. Hey, here's my laser pointer. Anyways, squirrel. Sorry. All right. Um, <coughs> but I came up with just this phrase of, NBN churches, NBN churches, no Bible needed. Um, it was amazing to me how many churches I could come to and no Bible was needed at all because either the pastor just referenced a few verses here and there to kind of communicate his ideas and his thoughts or they didn't reference the scripture at all. You know, we mentioned one of our emphasis is spiritual intimacy. Another is expository preaching because God's word is, guess what? God's word. And God promises it that it will be profitable, that it will accomplish its purposes. And so God's word is central to our worship. Before we move on, just one more note I want to make is that something that has happened in the modern church is that we have reduced this term worship to one element of the worship service. We have called singing worship, right? That's that's worship. So what do we do? We get in there, we do some worship, we have a fellowship time, uh, we have a sermon, we do communion, and then we do a little bit more worship, and then, you know, the benediction. We even call this person a lot of times the worship leader, okay? Now, I know this might seem a little bit nitpicky, but I think it's actually a fairly significant deal, because what happens by labeling one component of the worship service, worship, is that we are elevating that part above all the other parts, unintentionally, I think. But that's what we're doing, And so what we do here, when we gather, when we sing, when we do call and response, even when we do fellowship together, we are continuing in worship. As as the proclamation of God's word, as we're doing communion, as we are giving our tithes and offering, all of it is a part of the corporate worship of God. And so if you catch yourself saying, you know, worship leader or someone else, maybe you can gently encourage them or yourself. It's all worship. It's all an offering to God that he responds with his grace. So those are the components of worship. Secondly, it's the heart of worship. Again, this is by no means exhaustive. Uh, Throughout scripture, we see how we should come to God with humble hearts, with repentant hearts in awe and in reverence of God. But look at the focus in this passage. Verse 43 says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. I love that line. That's their heart posture. The women and children also rejoice. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Rejoicing is not a peripheral issue to God. It is central to our worship of God. Just 
taking an exam of the Bible, you see this all over, just a couple of verses. Deuteronomy 12 says, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Habakkuk 3 says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Zechariah 9 says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Moving to the New Testament, Jesus himself says, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Romans 12, rejoice in hope. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always. Philippians 2, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. In other words, even if I'm being persecuted or if I'm dying for the sake of Jesus, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Finally, Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It seems pretty clear God's view of our rejoicing, isn't it? Albert Barnes commenting on Philippians 4 says this. He says, rejoicing is the privilege of the Christian, not at certain periods and distant intervals, but at all times they may rejoice that there is a God and Savior. You know, certainly there are times in our life where we are dealing with sadness and grief over the brokenness of the world. But this is why we are told not just simply to rejoice, but to rejoice in Christ, to rejoice in God. Because no matter what is happening in this world, God is constant and he is faithful. Tim Keller uh, defines this, this biblical joy or illustrates it as kind of a spiritual buoyancy. That whatever comes your way, when when happiness maybe diminishes, that that inner joy remains because you have this inner buoyancy of joy that is determined not based on your circumstances, but on God who is constant and faithful. Friends, if you tether your ultimate joy to your friends, you will be driven to despair. If you tether your ultimate joy to your family, your children, your joy will be forsaken. If you tether your ultimate joy to your health, It will be destroyed. If you tether your ultimate joy to anything in this world, your joy will sink. But if you tether your joy to God, no matter what storms come your way, your joy will float because God is faithful all the time, because God is good all the time. Friends, we are called to come with a heart of joy to worship the God who is faithful. Finally, the access to worship. You know, I know sometimes I approach Sunday mornings like God is lucky that I showed up today, right? Like, you know, I'm really busy, God, but for you, I'll do it, right? Like, lucky God, Dan showed up today. I kind of have to because I do that whole preaching thing. But anyways, we kind of treat God like this old man who's, who's lonely and and needs a visitor. I think we're quick to forget that coming into the presence of God for worship on Sunday mornings is an awesome privilege. It's not only an obligation, but it is a blessing that we are completely unworthy of. Sinful man should not be able to come into the presence and worship God. If you remember, Moses said to God, he said, God, please show me your glory. And what did God say? God said, you cannot see my faith, for man shall not see me and live. I love the description of Isaiah that he gives when he has a vision of the throne room of God. The imagery is just unbelievable and shows us the awesomeness of God. 
Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Can you imagine this? And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Because not even the seraphim could look on the holiness and greatness of God. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Friends, we do not deserve to come together to worship this awesome God. We are sin-latent creatures who deserve to perish before a holy God. This is the tension for us today. This was the tension for the people of Israel at that time. And yet God makes a provision for his people that they might come and worship him. In verse 30, we see this provision in part. It says, when the priests and the Levites purified themselves. And they purified the people, all the gates and the wall. Why does something need to be purified? Why does water need to be purified? Because it's contaminated. We're contaminated by sin. There's this ceremonial washing with water in which the people would be ceremonially cleansed and allowed to come into the worship of God. Verse 43 mentions as well, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. Why did they have to offer sacrifices? They had to offer sacrifices for their sin because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Friends, how can we, as a sinful people, gather together to worship a holy, mighty, and awesome God? How can we come to this consuming fire and not be burned. It's only through the cleansing of sacrificial blood. Ephesians 2 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, far off from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9 says this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkle of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Friends, when we come on Sundays, we come before an awesome and powerful God, and yet we leave because we are protected by Christ. On YouTube, there's a video, and I posted on our and our Facebook page. You can look at it later if you want. But it's entitled, The Most Dangerous Job on Earth, HV Cable Inspector. HV means high-voltage inspective cable. And uh, the video starts with this man who's sitting on this metal platform that's, a tech, that's connected to the legs of a helicopter. And you see him flying out over this great vast area. And they come up on this river. And, over, and going over this river are these high-voltage power lines. And they're probably like 300 yards in the air. They're way up there. And so as he's flying towards these, these voltage lines, these power lines, uh, he starts talking. It's narrated by him. And he says this. He says, back in the late 1800s, there's a gentleman by the name of Michael Faraday. He had a theory that if you enclosed a man in a metal cage and energized that cage at whatever voltage, that man would live. The voltage would flow around him. And then you see him crawling onto the wires. It's crazy. And he says, I wear a hot suit, which is 25% stainless steel thread. And that metal thread means I have a Faraday cage around me. And he says, a half a million volts 
pass over my body, but I can work without interference from electricity because of that Faraday suit. As the video goes on, you see him crawling on the wires hundreds of feet above the ground. And he says there's such a hunger for electricity that these days no one wants to take the lines out of service just to maintain them. And then the video ends with the man saying this, and I love it. He says, there are only three things I've ever been afraid of. Electricity, heights, and women. And he ends by saying, and I'm married too. Half a million volts going around his body, this awesome power that he is in contact with, and he does not die. Why? Because he's clothed in this Faraday suit. How can we come and worship a God who is far more powerful than those voltage lines without dying? Because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You see, at the cross, there was this great exchange in which we gave Christ all of our sin, all of our shame. He pays for it in full. He's forsaken by God on our behalf, but he raises on the third day to give us his righteousness that we might come and worship before a holy God as we were created to, as we long to do. Let me end with this. The great evangelist, Lyman Beecher Stowe records a story about his two sons in a book called Saints, Sinners, and Beechers. What a great title. Saints, Sinners, and Beechers. On one occasion, his son Henry was scheduled to preach at Plymouth Church in Brooklyn. Henry was a famous preacher and social reformer. Wherever he was coming, hundreds of people would come to hear him talk. Well, on this particular day, Henry was unable to make it to the pulpit that morning for whatever reason. And so he asked his brother Thomas K. Beecher to fill in for him instead. Upon Thomas' appearance in the pulpit, sightseers started to get up and to leave the sanctuary. At this, Thomas raised his hand for attention and he made this announcement. He says, all who have come here today to worship Henry Ward Beecher may now withdraw from the church. But all who have come to worship God, you may be seated. You know, I know we have covered a lot of material today and what it looks like to come and to worship God. But to put it simply, if we want to reclaim the worship of our heart, reclaim the worship of our church, reclaim the worship of our city, we must make sure that our worship is not about the music that it is not about the preacher, it is not about the length of service or how people use their hands in service. If we want to reclaim the worship of God, we must make worship all about God. Let's pray. Lord, I come first to confess that I often get distracted from the main focus of worship. I, I focus on so many different little things. In this service, out of the service, whatever it might be, God, we are weak and distracted and frail people, prone to wander. But we thank you that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and you invite us back time and time again to enter to this blessed privilege of gathering together and worshiping you. Lord, may our worship be great, not because it is excellent in the way that it's carried out, but may our worship be great because it is focused on you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. After blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then the same way after supper, he took the cup and he said, drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, if you're here today and you come to worship God, even if you're here today and you're distracted and you say, I want to worship God. I want my heart and focus to be on God. If you trust in Christ for your salvation, this is for you to nourish you in your worship. I love this because this is a physical, touchable, consumable reminder of God's great love for us in Christ, of the faithfulness of God, of the goodness of God that we could depend on at all times. If you're here today and you trust in Christ, we invite you to come and take. If you don't trust in Christ for your salvation yet, if you're just considering these things, we're glad you're here, but we ask that you not partake because we have an awesome God who warns that there is judgment that comes upon those who take in an unworthy manner. And so we ask that you would wait until that day you could take it genuinely with faith in Christ. We'll have several ushers set up throughout the sanctuary. When we're ready, please go and take the elements, bring it back to your seat, and we'll partake together as one body, the body of Jesus Christ.